the Sunday Sermons Podcast. Today is the second day in a series called Love Life. If you missed the first one, I hope you go back and check out the first one. It's online in a several different formats. But the core idea is this. We cannot, we literally cannot do what Jesus has told us to do. We cannot live the kind of life that he wants us to live. We cannot love the way he taught us to love on our own. But what he offers us is the chance to actually completely reboot us from the inside out. And if we submit to that, if we allow him to do that, if we team up with other fellow believers who are doing that, if we live with the Holy Spirit's power flowing through us, then we can. What he wants us to do is reach out. And that's what we're following. That's what we're looking at today. And we're going to especially focus on that there's a cost to that. That like almost anything in the world that actually matters and is really worth doing, reaching out doesn't just happen. There's a cost to it. We're going to look at that. But first, let me ask you this. Uh, are anybody excited about St. Patrick's Day? Just a couple of them. Okay, good. That means I don't have to um, avoid very many people if I forget to wear green uh, this coming Wednesday. But here's why I mentioned this this morning. What I really want to say, what, what I really want to tell you about is the real guy, St. Patrick. Now, if we sat down and talked theology, he and I might not agree on every single point about every single thing, but he is a perfect example of what we're talking about today, the kind of reaching out at all costs. Most of the stuff you know about him, the shamrock and all that, that's really just myths and not really, really true. But here's the truth in a nutshell about St. Patrick, the real dude. He was actually not Irish. He was of Roman descent. He was born and raised in Great Britain. And at the age of 16, he was captured by Irish pirates and sold into slavery in Ireland. He was there for several years, but he was a believer. And just like David did, he, 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 was actually, he actually was a shepherd. That was part of his job as, as a slave. He was a shepherd, and in those times alone, he actually got closer to God. And he eventually escaped and made his way all the way back to Great Britain at about the age of 22. But he barely got there, and God called him back to Ireland, this time as a missionary. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that would be a pretty hard call for me to follow. I'd go back and reach out to the people who had enslaved me, the people who I had just escaped. But this is what he did. And he spent the rest of his life, he lived 40 more years, and all 40 he spent encouraging the church in Ireland and doing the best in his understanding of God and the church and how it should be done, doing his best to build God's kingdom there. And it's that attitude that why on Wednesday this week, I'm going to be praying for you and I'd like you to pray for each other and pray for me. That, that God will give us the same spirit as St. Patrick. That we would be willing to do whatever it takes. Pay any price. Do whatever it takes to reach out. To reach out to whoever he calls us to, whether we understand that or not. Reaching out is what Jesus did his whole life. And he was willing to pay any price. He was constantly breaking traditions and crossing barriers that mess with people. And every single day, every time he did this, he knew that that was laying down his chances of just kind of having a peaceful day, of having the approval of the people around him, of kind of having any kind of a life like you or I might try to build for ourselves just to be comfortable or to have some friends or fall in love with somebody or whatever else. 
He knew that laying down his life was a daily thing. And he also knew that it was all building toward literally laying down his life, losing his life. Every tradition he broke, every barrier he crossed, every choice he made was leading toward the cross. And he knew this the whole time. And yet it was worth it to him. It was worth it to him. Throughout 2020 and 2021, as it progresses now, there's been a lot of changes, haven't there? A lot of adjustments, a lot of things. A lot of things are new, mostly by necessity and some just by strategy. But through it all, uh, Dr. Jody Owens from Johnson University has done a great job of reaching out to all the local ministers and encouraging us. He recently in a video said this, I want to learn from the latest research and trends, but I want to avoid the modern trap of presuming that what is old is deficient and that what is new is by default better. He, he quotes C.S. Lewis, every age has its own outlook. It is especially good at seeing certain truths and especially liable at making certain mistakes. The point he's trying to make is this, just because something is new or fresh or some really popular Christian or really big church came up with it doesn't mean it's the right way to do it. What's right and what's good and what's, what's a great tradition to hold on to and not mess with at all is the kind of tradition that keeps us on track with God's original values and goals. Whatever that means at any age, those are good traditions. And whenever the traditions themselves start to become an in and of themselves and maybe even distract us from God's original goals, we're, we're working harder to preserve the traditions than we are to actually accomplish the goals, something's wrong. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Uh, you might have heard this story before. I read it in Reader's Digest a long time ago. I think I might have even shared it here. But just in case, um, I, it's worth sharing again. And if you've never heard it, happy St. Patrick's Day. Here's, this is a good story. Apparently, there was a young couple. And when they first got married, the wife was so excited to fix uh, her family's version of a traditional Christmas dinner for the first time as a young wife. So she starts making the ham and she puts this big ham in a pot and she cuts off a piece and throws it away. And her husband goes, what, what, why did you just do that? She said, that's how you make ham. He said, I've, I've never seen anybody just throw part of the thing away. She goes, no, that's how we do it. That's how my mom always does it. He goes, well, why don't you call her and ask her why she does that? I've never seen that before. So she calls her mom. She goes, hey, mom, my husband doesn't understand that this is how you make ham. Why do we cut the end off? And she goes, I don't, I don't know. My mom always did that. That's how I was taught. I think that's just how you make ham. She said, well, I'm calling grandma. So she calls grandma. Hey, grandma, why do we always cut the end of the ham off uh, when we cook ham? And her grandma said, because my pan's too small. <laughs> Here's my belief. I'm going to ask you in a second to say we must break traditions, but I, but I want you to understand what we're saying here. It's not a good thing to just randomly break traditions. It's not a good thing in and of itself. It's not a bad thing in and of itself to change things around. But as Christians, we've got to make sure that the traditions, the things we do all the time here, the things we do at home all the time, the things we do as individuals day after day, the daily rhythms of our lives, that's what we're calling traditions here. And, and, and we've got to constantly measure those against the real stuff. It's my personal belief that almost everything that's done in this church and probably all the churches around here at least started out 
with good intentions. They were strategies that worked. We're, we're going to dress this way. We're going to sing this way. We're going to decorate this way. We're going to pray this way. What, whatever it was, they meant well. There was a strategy. It worked well at the time. Kind of like the grandma cutting off part of the ham because her pan didn't, what, wasn't big enough. Are you with me on that? But whenever we kind of get so mired in that that it starts making it harder for outsiders to become insiders, something's got to change. We've got to be willing to adapt our strategies to accomplish his goals. I'm going to say that one more time. Please listen. This is important. We must be willing to adapt our strategies to accomplish his goals. And that's what we mean by this. Let's say it together. We must break traditions. Even God did this. Now, I understand he had a lot more intention than we'll ever even understand. But there was an Old Testament and a New Testament. You with me? Old covenant, new covenant, different strategies. And in the old covenant, the law was designed to paint this really stark portrait of, of sin and how terrible it was and a really bright, good portrait of righteousness and justice and what God was like and contrast those. And all the laws were there. All the punishments were there. We're trying to discourage sin, trying to keep people from going that route. They, it, it wasn't so much that God just really wanted to punish people. It was all about keeping them from going that direction in the first place. This is so, so bad. This is so, so good. One of those examples was adultery was a capital crime. You could get killed for adultery. The law was that if a man and woman were caught in adultery, they had to get stoned. And I don't mean they smoked marijuana. I mean people threw rocks at them until they died. Thank you. I'll be here all morning. But seriously, it wasn't a pretty thing. It wasn't a funny thing. It wasn't a goofy thing. They killed them and everybody got together and they knew it was their responsibility to throw these rocks. I can imagine what that was like. Fast forward to the time of Jesus... And they bring just a woman. I don't know where the guy was. I, I don't know what's going on here. But they're trying to entrap Jesus. And they bring a woman who'd been caught in adultery to Jesus. And they say, so should we stone her? That's what the law says. Well, Jesus was constantly messing with people. And this time, he, he get, just got down and starts writing in the dirt. Doesn't tell us what he wrote. A lot of good guesses that I've heard. I don't know what he wrote down there. He just writes in the dirt. John 8, 7, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, if you've never read this whole story, you need to. It's at the beginning of John chapter 8. You need to go back and reread that. But notice what he's doing here. He's not questioning the law. He's not saying that it's a bad idea to have bad punishments for sins. But that law was not there to make them feel superior, to make the rock throwers feel like their sin was any less evil than adultery was. It was just, adultery is a really big deal that really messes a lot of stuff up and God really didn't want them to commit that. And so he had this terrible punishment. Jesus is just taking them back to the original intent of that law. And so all the people are standing with their rocks and they realize, I have sinned. And one by one they dropped their rocks and walked away Jesus straightened up and asked her woman where are they has no one condemned you no one sir she said then neither do I condemn you Jesus declared go now and leave your life of sin 
Just like the two stories we looked at last week, the Pharisee that came to Jesus, the Samaritan woman that he went to and visited, both of them got the same message, and she gets almost the same wording even. That God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. He doesn't just want to punish her for what she's done wrong. He wants to save her from that. He gives her a chance to go and sin no more. He saves her. In Matthew 12, we see the ongoing conflict still going on with Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other experts in the law. As he and his disciples are on their way to the synagogue to worship, it's the Sabbath and that's where they're going. They're going to study the Bible and to worship God. And as they're going along, they're not harvesting rain. They're not actually working, but they're just kind of grabbing some stuff as they go and kind of munching, kind of snacking. And the Pharisees say, hey, that looks a lot like work. And you can't work on the Sabbath. Your, your disciples are breaking the law. They're breaking our traditions. You better fix that. Jesus turns that thing all around. He says, guess what? The Sabbath was made for mankind, not mankind for the Sabbath. Rest is a gift that God gives you. It's not, you're not designed just so that you'll rest. You're designed to be able to rest, to recharge you to do other stuff. You guys are getting this all wrong. These guys are just snacking on their way to church. Y'all are really missing the whole point. And he declares himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And when he gets to the synagogue, he heals a guy with a withered hand. We're not sure exactly what that means. Maybe it was cerebral palsy. Maybe it was paralyzed. We don't know what happened to his hand. But the guy had never been able to use his hand. And that day, Jesus healed it. He said, so what do you think? Is it better to do good on the Sabbath? Or to not do good? Just turns it all around. Because he's pointing them back to the intention of the Sabbath. He's pointing them back to what it was all about. The purpose was bigger. He's asking them to adapt their strategies to accomplish God's goals. God's dream was never that we follow each other around on Saturday going, how many steps have you taken? How many bites have you taken? Because that's a lot like work. We're supposed to be thinking about God and worshiping and doing what he designed us to do. You're tracking so far? Making sense? We good? So the second thing then that Jesus asks us to do, the second thing that it costs to really truly reach out is to cross barriers. And just like, just like with the traditions, I gotta clarify this a little bit. Crossing all barriers is not a bad thing. It's not a good thing necessarily. Some barriers you shouldn't cross. Anything that God says don't do, you really shouldn't do. There's also some things he says, I need you to focus on this. And don't do the other stuff, not because it's wrong, just because I need you to do this. Any of those barriers must stay in place. We've got to do those things. That's where we are. But sometimes as we go through life, we throw up some barriers that don't need to be there. We make it harder on outsiders to become insiders than it needs to be. There's already a narrow gate, and that's Jesus. There's already a very strict way of life that Jesus gives us. It's already strict enough. But when we start making it more complicated than it needs to be, something is wrong. In Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4, Jesus crossed some barriers. 
One of the things they were never able to do ever was touch someone who was sick, let alone, and especially leprosy. We actually looked at this story, verses 1 through 8, last week. So I'm not going to repeat that whole thing. But if you remember, he touches the guy. And instead of that making him unclean, Jesus made the leper clean. He changed his whole life. And the leper goes to go through all the ceremonies to declare himself clean. Jesus just goes on his way. And i got to tell you that even before masks and all that became popular, I'm not a big fan of germs. And the idea that Jesus, it doesn't say anywhere in here that he went and washed his hands even after touching the leper. That kind of creeps me out just a little bit. That's just me. Maybe not you. But I'm like, eh. I understand. This is so cool. He's demonstrating his power and all that, but he just goes on his way. I mean, hmm. But look at verse 5. This story just keeps on going. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a a centurion came to him. This is a Roman soldier. A centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? You can almost hear a gasp go up collectively from the people around him. They just saw him touch a leper and heal him. They're still reeling from that. And now he's inviting himself to a sick Roman's house. You don't go to the people that are oppressing us as house. You don't go to a sick person's house. Regardless, what are you doing, Jesus? But Jesus doesn't see all the labels and all the barriers that we put up. He doesn't see all those things that filter stuff out so much for us. He sees right to the heart of this guy. And he sees more faith in this guy than he saw in the people around him. The centurion says, hey, you know what? I'm a man of authority and I understand how this works. If you could heal him in person, I bet you could just say the word now and heal him from a distance. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. You talk about knocking down some barriers. The whole Jew, Gentile thing was a big, 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 big deal to them. Jesus just kind of obliterates it. He says, this guy's faith is more valuable than anybody here's lineage. We're going to bust those barriers down. You know how they know that his servant was healed later? Because somebody had to talk to this guy later. Somebody else had to cross that barrier and find out this story. I guarantee you, they don't just magically know these things. Somebody had to tell them. So what happened? Did the servant get better? Yeah, he did. Right at that moment. Wow. There's an open line of communication that wasn't there before. Well, Jesus just keeps walking. It never even says he washes his hands yet. I'm still a little disturbed by that. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she got up and began to wait on him. That night, many came. 
Hundreds, maybe thousands came to the house where he was staying, where that sick person had just been, where Jesus had just turned that whole thing on its ear. But let me tell you, it wasn't a super spreader situation for whatever she had or leprosy or whatever the centurion's son had had or anything else. Instead, it was a dramatic, dramatic miracle. Everybody who showed up, if they had a demon, they left without the demon. Everybody who showed up, if they left with a disease or any kind of physical impairment, they left healed. He changed everything. It's the same strategy that he used all the time, actually, not just with sick people. In Luke 19, he, he does the same thing with Zacchaeus. How many remember the story of Zacchaeus? You know, the wee little man, he was a wee little man, was he? As a kid, they always made me do this, this, this motion here. Wee little man, was he? I was like, what is he, an action figure? How little is this dude? He's not that little, I guarantee you. He's just a short guy. But he comes to Jesus. He does whatever it takes to get to Jesus. And then Jesus goes straight to his home. And again, he's crossing barriers that you are not allowed to cross at that time. You don't go to a traitor's house. You don't go to a liar in a cheater's house. You don't go to a rich, selfish man's house. That's, you're not on the same team with him. Stay away from those people. Good night. But Jesus goes right to his house. But watch, if you know that story, it's in Luke 19. If you don't, you need to read that one today too. I hope you go back and read all these passages that I, whether I put them on the screen or just refer to them, I hope you do. That's always my dream. But it, what happens is he goes to his house and Jesus says, truly I tell you, salvation has come to this house today. Because Zacchaeus started changing right away. He changed everything. That day he started repaying the debts that he had been stacking up. Everybody he'd ripped off, he started fixing it. He started making right. He started just being generous, just generally handing stuff away. He changed everything. Because Jesus crossed the barrier took the heat. It was worth it to him to be rejected by the popular people, by the popular religious people, the smart people of the day. It was worth it to him to get, get them mad at him and cross those barriers and actually get the job done. Which leads us to the third big cost that always happens, that it costs something to reach out. And that is, literally, we must lay down our lives. And for most of us, it, it, it's going to be a daily choice. We're not going to actually get killed, most of us, for reaching out. But it's a daily choice where we're sacrificing whatever else we might have done with that day. Whatever else we might have done to make ourselves comfortable or to make ourselves feel good or to make ourselves popular or whatever else we might have done to try to have what we define as a good life. We lay that down to reach out. That's what it costs us. The first time you see anybody go out on a mission trip, it's in Matthew 10, and Jesus sends them out. There's some missionaries here this morning. We're so thankful that you guys are here. My, my parents were missionaries. I know one of the big parts of missions, and it's necessary, and it's good, and it's not bad. And don't misunderstand me and think I'm saying that. But you have to raise support. And most missions organizations are really smart and strategic and they ask you to raise enough support so you can actually have some insurance and maybe some retirement or something like that. It's all good stuff. It's not bad. But notice here that when Jesus sends his people out, he doesn't do that. 
He doesn't say, hey, we're going to have a mission trip in about six months. I need you to raise up some support, save up some money. We're going to make sure everybody has passports. We're going to wear matching t-shirts. He doesn't do anything like that. He just empowers them to do the stuff he's been doing. Empowers them to do whatever he has commanded them to do. And says, go. Somebody's going to take care of you. And if they don't, go to the next place. Just go. You're just going to have to trust Jesus. Just trust. Go. It's that simple. They are laying down their lives. They didn't get killed at that spot in time. Later on they did. We know that from history. But that was after the Great Commission when he sent all of us out. In Matthew 14 and John 6, we see the story of Jesus finding out that John the Baptist had been killed and he wants to go and be alone. He needs this time alone. He needs to be with God and to grieve and to pray and to prepare for the next phase of his ministry. He didn't advertise. He didn't say, hey, this is going to be an awesome moment that everybody's going to talk about for the next 2,000 years. Everybody needs to come. I'm going to do this awesome big miracle. He was going where he was going to be alone and to grieve. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it's really important to notice, read to the end of the chapter and realize that he did take time before the long, long day was over to grieve and to pray and all the things he needed to do. But when he got there, there were thousands of people there. So what did he do? He spent the day teaching them, healing them, serving them, teaching his disciples and including them to do the same. That's the day he fed the 5,000, which we all know is a lot more than 5,000. They only counted the heads of the family. But again, you see Jesus laying down his life in a, in a daily sense, as well as it's all building up to a great big ultimate sense where he's actually going to give his life for us on the cross. And he expected the same stuff from us. He prayed the night before he was crucified. I've given them your word and the world has hated them. For they're not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They're not of the world even as I am not of it. See, if we try to live our lives by the world's standards, if we're trying to save our lives, to have a great life, a wonderful life. Live a life that everybody else envies and go, man, that person must love their life. If we try to do that from the world's standards, we're missing the whole thing. And if we try to live it by Jesus' standards, that's going to look weird to everybody else. And this is why it's so important that we're willing to adjust our strategies to accomplish God's goals. Because think about it for a second. Everything we do here is weird from the outside looking in. We pray to an invisible God. We sing songs to him. We come forward and we take it really seriously, these little tiny snacks that we're having. And we say things like, this is the body and the blood of the Savior. We give up our hard-earned money and, and we're, it's an honor to do it. It's an act of worship. It's an act of gratitude. It's an investment in his kingdom. It's an act of worship. And we're excited to give. You spend a lot of time listening to somebody stand up here and talk to you about a really old book and how it somehow still applies. That's weird, but it's good, right? There's no reason for us to make what's already looking weird to everybody else weirder. There's no reason to add to that. There's no reason to say this is Christian and also 
at here at this church, you also need to dress like this, and you need to talk like this, and we sing these songs, and da da da, and everything else. Any other versions of this thing is wrong. That this is the only. If we start complicating it, Jesus is not okay with that. He just wants us to be weird the exact same way he is weird. And that is that we lay down our lives for the cause. We're willing to trade anything to get the job done. Sanctify them by the truth, he said. Your word is truth. Sanctify means set apart for a specific purpose. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. Now he's praying for us. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. When we say that we need to reach out, I need you to hear me. If you kind of drifted off for a second, I need you to focus. We're wrapping this thing up, and this is so important. You need to reach out in three specific directions. The first is you've got to reach out to Jesus, because we don't have anything worth sharing without him. If he doesn't reboot us from the inside out, if we're not fueled by the Holy Spirit, empowered by Jesus, if what we're doing is not what he has called us to do, we don't really have anything worth sharing. You can't do this on your own. You need to reach out to Jesus first. And if that needs to happen this morning, I'm asking you to do that today. When we pray this prayer, Lord, I will reach out. I need you to start by reaching out to Jesus. Do whatever business you need to do with him. But you also need to reach out to the people around you. This is a team sport. Every metaphor he gives us is some sort of a group that follows ahead. Whether it's an army following a commander or a body following ahead or a flock of sheep following a shepherd. It's always a group of people working together behind some sort of a leader every single time. We need to reach out to each other. We need to do what, whatever we need to do. Accept those whose faith is weak. Make every effort to do whatever leads to peace or mutual edification. All of these scriptures I'm just throwing out, they're all in your sermon outline. I hope you go back and read those later. But especially together, listen to me, we've got to reach out. This is not a wonderful thing that we just talk about and think, you know what, we really should do that some. And it doesn't just happen. It never just happens. It costs something. It's intentional. It, it, it means we have to sacrifice. We, the definition of insanity, insanity, have you heard this before? It's a cliche. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. How many have heard this? That's what we're saying here today. If you're getting the same results all the time, we need to do something just a little bit different. We can't just settle for not reaching out. We've got to be willing to do whatever that takes, whatever that means to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, to make disciples for Jesus. Would you say this with me and then would you stand and let's sing. And if you've got a decision to reach out in any of these directions or all of them, let's make it as we sing together. But let's pray this together. Lord, I will reach out. Come on, say it like you mean it. Lord, I will reach out.